Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Let me ask you if you would to take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 2. Well, this is an exciting day for me. Uh, not very many preachers like to be up uh, on the Sunday prior to all the great uh, holy weeks that are just in front of us because it's kind of a downtime. But I'm excited to be here today because I get to join the other guys in this little letter of 1 John. I have been out of uh, expositional preaching for a number of months. So uh, this is really exciting to get back into a text and enjoy it with you. There's some tremendous uh, truth that is found here in this little letter called 1 John. You know, from time to time, many of you will uh, read about how our lives are broken down statistically in the way we participate in different activities over a lifetime. We know, for instance, that about 33% of our life is spent sleeping. Uh, we know, for instance, that 7% of our time is spent eating. There are probably some who bump it to eight, maybe 9%. <laughs> 4% of the time um, of our life is uh, spent hanging around the bathroom for various and sundry reasons. Uh, most uh, of us know that uh, by our time our children turn 18, uh, some of them will have watched up to 15,000 hours of television. Certainly that has an unbelievable influence in shaping their lives. I'm sure someone somewhere has a, a statistic on how we package our lives on almost everything, from shopping to eating out to dancing, even to driving our cars. But there is one statistic of time. I doubt that anyone anywhere has taken the time to measure. It probably makes up only a very small percentage of our time, probably less than 1%. And yet I believe its impact on our lives is enormous compared to that small sliver, sliver of time throughout our lifetime that we give to it. In fact, I believe that much of the quality of our life, its success or failure, its impact, the positive nature of our lives or the negative nature of it as far as influence goes, is decided in less than a percent period of our lives. So what is that time period? The time I speak of is the time that you and I use over a lifetime in deciding what is true and what is false. What is true about life and what is false. And then after we make that decision, how we intend to live our lives out in light of what we've decided. And just imagine, there's all kinds of general things we do, like I said, eating, sleeping, driving, Enormous amounts of time we spend in those areas. But the reality is, in less than a percent of our whole life, we will engage in thinking through what is right and what is wrong and how we're going to live in light of that. And then that goes on. Those tiny little moments go on and flavor our whole lives and in many ways determine the very fabric and character of our lives. Those crucial moments. I'd like to call those moments on your outline the fight. And that may sound unusual, but I think in those moments it is a fight in working through what is true and what is not and how we intend to live in light of that. And you have been at moments in your life in for the fight of your life. 
No doubt you felt some of that last week when Bill Wellens opened up this little letter in 1 Timothy 2 and just simply read the first line, love not the world. I don't know how you felt when you heard those words, but when I heard those words, I recalled, as maybe you did, a hundred tiny moments that have been peppered over my lifetime in which I fought it out within myself the difference between truth and error, between good and evil, between God and the world, and determined in those very small and tiny slivers of time what kind of person I was about to become. That's what's happened in your life as well. It all starts in just a simple little phrase. It doesn't need much explanation. Love not the world. We will be forever fighting for the quality of our life in these little moments. And part of that fight, as we learned last week in looking at three verses, 15, 16, and 17 of chapter 2, will be with the evil that is hiding within and behind a very seductive world system. An evil that, as you look at verse 16 there, is broken down along three very distinctive lines. This lure of pleasure that's in the world without restraint that always is beckoning us to come and indulge our senses with no rules. That's what John means when he says, the lust of the flesh. And then there is that constant lure of possessions that if we give ourselves to it in those tiny moments, ultimately start possessing us. And things are all that matter. John calls that the lust of the eyes. And then finally, there is that constant lure of power so that I might feel a sense of superiority over others. John calls that the pride of life. My wife and I were discussing that, and she said, you know, when I look at verse 16, I'd like to circle that and just write over it the game that a lot of us have played, trivial pursuit. Because that's really what is here in verse 16, because verse 17 goes on and says, and the world is passing away. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, which captures enormous amounts of time as we play that game that's passing away is really just the game of trivial pursuit. We're in for the fight of our lives in those moments. There's another part of this fight in our lives that's found in the verses I'm going to open up for you this morning, verses 18 through 27. And it addresses not an impersonal evil that's hiding behind all these seductive pleasures and possessions and positions that we see out in our world that would lure us to give our souls to it. This evil that I speak of here this morning is a personal evil that's not hiding behind things, but it's hiding behind human faces, people. Look with me there in verse 18, and we begin to get a sense of what I'm talking about. John writes, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that, is, that it is the last hour. You've heard the word Antichrist before, haven't you? And uh, it's interesting that if you were to take your Bible and read through your whole Bible, and now we've come to 1 John, and if you turn, there's only two more books of the Bible, and then you're finished. We're right at the end of the Bible. This is the first time the word Antichrist ever appears in either the Old or the New Testament. But when it appears, it introduces us to an incredible truth that many of us just need to think about here this morning. 
And that is, it brings to mind the truth that, that evil is not just some kind of force, impersonal force that's in the world. Neither, it is, neither is it some kind of invisible spirit. You know, as you see those horror shows, the green mist that creeps up under the door and the organ hits a minor key and you know evil is present in the room. It's not talking about that. What this introduces to us as an evil that comes to us in the form of another person. A person who looks good. A person who feels right. A person who talks convincingly. A person who for whatever reason has had his or her life captured in their tiny moments by the prince of darkness and now are being used to promote error in the lives of others. There are all kinds of people like that sprinkled throughout history that have had major impacts in our world. But at the top of the heap of these evil personalities stands this ultimate evil, a person, as you look in verse 18, who these people had already heard about, and his name is called Antichrist. He says he's coming, so he's still future to these people. And what I want you to know is he's still future to us. Now, there's some characteristics about this Antichrist as we talk about error that I think would be helpful. So I'm going to ask you if you'll take your Bibles quickly, because you need to read this with me, and turn back to the prophecies of Daniel. The prophecies of Daniel. And we're going to look in Daniel chapter 8 and just read a section that's given because there's a number of passages in the Bible that speak of Antichrist with a capital A. Now, there are other Antichrists we're going to talk about this morning, but we're going to start with the one who has a capital A in front of his title. And in Daniel chapter 8, he has this vision of this coming deceiver. And we're going to make a couple of observations about his life. Look at verse 23 with me. It says, And in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. And by his power, and, or excuse me, and his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men. He will destroy the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. And the vision of the evenings and the mornings which had been told is true, but keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Now it pertains many days to our future as well. Daniel's looking down through millennia of history. But now there are two observations I want to make out of this passage, if you'll look with me. Because so often we think of an evil person as somebody who has a strange and twisted look about them. You know, you know they just look, they look evil. They, they have this sense that they're, they're out of the mainstream. They're, 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 they're not part of mainstream or Main Street America, but, but, but they're, they're kind of a, a, a prophetic-like kind of creature, a Frankensteinish kind of personality. But you know, when you read Daniel chapter 8, you don't get that feel at all. When I read Daniel chapter 8, I get a different feeling about real evil. And my first observation is this, real evil is more traditional than strange. I see that when I look 
there at verse 23, and I see that this Antichrist is a king who will arise. In other words, he comes up through the traditional system of politics. He's not somebody who's some extremist like a David Koresh. No, he's just a politician of sorts, a, a person who in his giftedness before people publicly and internationally comes across as suave, comes across as sophisticated, comes across extremely articulate around the issues of the day. You see, real evil is never strange. Real evil is traditional. The second observation is, is that real evil is not ugly either. Uh, he, he's not going to make these ugly statements. If you, in fact, if you look at verse 25, he says, He will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. Deceit never succeeds by ugliness. It, succeed, it succeeds by being crafty and wise, by coming across convincingly, compellingly, by being attractive, powerful, magnetic, charismatic. When you think of Antichrist, I want you to think of somebody who has a smile, who has warmth, who has compassion, who makes you feel good, who has sincerity, who can offer convincing arguments that take things that you used to think were true, and by the time he's finished, they're not true, and the things he's saying are true. A loving look, a spiritual feel, a person who stands so close to the truth that you lose your objectivity. There are people like that. Have you been around people like that? It reminds me of a young man that I spent a great deal of time with a number of years ago. Uh, he came to me in a state of confusion. He had been very serious about his spiritual life. He had been really giving himself to pursuing Jesus Christ. But now he came to me distraught and uh, having his world turned upside down and not sure about where he stood in his relationship with Christ. Came about for him through a relationship with a beautiful young woman. A woman who had come to him a couple of times to our church but had decided to leave and attend another uh, fellowship and had gotten involved there who claimed to have faith and uh, claimed to have a vigorous spiritual life. She was holding a a good job. She was very attractive and intelligent. And uh, in her relationship with this young man, in all her sincerity, she began to object to certain things about what he believed and what our church, I think, would obviously believe. And she felt like that we were overly strict in our interpretations of the Bible and our understanding about spiritual life. And she was at a place where things were much broader and people thought in a much more comprehensive way. And as she interacted with that young man, she began to offer uh, ideas that, that seemed a little bit right, but he was confused. And after a while, she turned his theological world upside down, especially as it regards love and sex and dating. And I want you to know, so persuasive was she that she seduced this young man who was desiring to follow Christ into a number of sexual encounters, but she made it seem compatible with a healthy spiritual life. Now, when you say it like that, it doesn't fit. That's kind of a riddle. But you know, Antichrist is known for his riddles. She put this equation before him. Illicit sex plus spiritual life 
equals accuracy. She made it sound accurate and right and even good. And so there he sat before me with this puzzle that she had put together and spun it in such a way that it all made sense to him. And he was asking me to clarify because he knew I wouldn't agree. Do you think there are people out there that can do that to you? Evil behind a human face? If you don't think so, you're making a grand error in relationship to the text that we're talking about this morning. Because evil has a human face and evil can make through a human personality wrong look extremely right. That's the spirit of Antichrist. And only a clear biblical eye can discern it all as simply a mask for the destroyer who is behind it. I want you to look in 1 John 2.18. John's eye, however, is not on the Antichrist that's to come, a future Antichrist. He's on, on target concerning present Antichrist. And here you can just leave it with a little a. Little Antichrist, he says, have arisen among us. And we want to ask, well, who are they? And why does John call this time the last hour as these Antichrists are coming forth? And I want to stop for just a moment because there's some who struggle with this term, the last hour. Uh, because it seems as if John thinks that he's right before the coming of Christ and Christ is coming. These Antichrists are signs of that. And uh, certainly it appears that way. You know, I'm not sure why, but um, in any of the Greek manuscripts of the, of the New Testament we have, none of them have the last hour in them. I'm not sure why the translators chose to put this, but if you were going to translate it right out of an original Greek manuscript, it would say this, children, it is a last hour rather than the last hour. The direct article is missing. And I think that is important for a number of reasons. You may remember that Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, as he spoke concerning the last hour or day before the close of history and his second coming, he said this. He said, concerning this day and the hour, no one knows it, not even the Son of Man, nor even the Father. And so given that, I find it impossible that John, one of his apostles, would hear in this moment tell his followers, well, I know, it's right now. This is the last hour. And on top of that, he would have been wrong, right? Because it wasn't the last hour. And that's why I think it's important just simply to point out to you, he's just simply saying it's a last hour, and I think he speaks more symbolically than he does chronologically. It's the same thing that we do if we were to all get up and go to a championship football game. And in the midst of all that high school uh, atmosphere and the game ends on a great note and we're walking out, one of you might say, gosh, this was a Super Bowl. Now notice what you didn't say. You didn't say this is the Super Bowl because that's speaking very literally, isn't it? You would say this is a Super Bowl. In other words, it had all the characteristics and hype and excitement. It was a championship as the big one, the real Super Bowl. And so you're excited about that. I think what John is saying to his readers here, he's saying, children, this day is like the last hour. It is a last hour that goes along with the last hour. It has the same characteristics. And we know that the last hour, the Antichrist will appear. And when this world ruler appears, he will deceive people with deception that will be all time. 
He will have the world under his spell and he will control many people. People's love will grow cold for one another. 2 Timothy 3 says there will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure. They'll be brutal without self-control. That's what the final hour before Jesus' second coming is like. I think what John is saying here, he's saying, you know, we're in a last hour. It's a lot like that. Because many antichrists are coming up out of the church here. And people's love at this point in time in the Roman Empire had grown incredibly self-indulgent. They were lovers of self and haters of good and brutal towards one another. He said it has all the characteristics of the last day, the last day. And this is a last hour. Now I want to say to you all, children, unlike any other time in human history, where we are right now is a last hour. I don't know if it's the last hour because no one knows that. But I want you to know we are in a kind of last hour ourselves. We live in a time where there are many antichrists around us. All we have to do is go back 150 years and we find a Joseph Smith who comes offering a different gospel. We go into the last part of the 1800s and we find German rationalists spring up and then spread their poison to our seminaries and colleges in the mainland United States and they come to a place where those seminaries and colleges begin to deny the very God that they once used to worship. And they hold to a form of God, but they deny His power. And then we go into this particular century and we see a sun yun moon come forth claiming to be the Messiah. We see a Bishop Spahn who comes out of Massachusetts who thinks of Paul as a latent homosexual and Jesus Christ is not who he says he is and he's an Episcopal bishop. We see people like David Koresh send hundreds up in flames claiming that, you know, he holds these seven seals and he's the prophet of God. There are many antichrists going out today. And that's just to mention a few. But not only that, we live in a day when people are lovers of self and lovers of pleasure and brutal towards one another. Without self-control, we're a world without self-control. And coming to a place where we love ourselves more than we love God. And then in light of that, we see this great nation of Israel, which is one of the central signs of the closing of the age, coming together as a nation today. Little children. This is a last hour. This is a time that has a lot of danger in it where everything's thrown up in the air, and as it's thrown up in the air, and people are wondering what life is all about, in those kind of transitional times, and we're in a great transition in America as the information age breaks forth, many false Christ and antichrist arise who seek to offer a better way to live than what Jesus Christ has already said in telling us how to live. And they are very persuasive. Before your lifetime is over, I will promise you, you will be seduced a number of times to believe something different about life altogether from a number of sources. So how do you spot an antichrist? Well, John, as he goes on in this letter, tells us that antichrists, these little antichrists, have three distinguishing characteristics. I want to walk through those. There are three of them. The first is found in verse 19. John says that antichrists move away from spiritually healthy people. Notice verse 19. They went out from us, but they, did not they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out 
in order that it might be shown that they are all not of us. And of us is this apostle, this spiritually healthy person. Did you know that most heresies, most of the heresies that you'll deal with in your lifetime came from people who grew up in the church? And at some time in their upbringing, they rejected their foundations, but took some of the pieces of what they heard and they went out and they founded a whole different belief system. But in going out, they declared themselves not to be of the Orthodox faith. Now, there are reasons to leave a church. Some people leave a church because they want to join a body that's more vigorous, but in an Orthodox belief system. That's okay. There are some people who leave a church because the church itself has left that Orthodox belief system and they're just moving on to find Orthodoxy. But Antichrist are people who leave a vibrant, spiritually healthy system of belief and move away from it because they cannot, they cannot find themselves in harmony with what that healthy environment is telling them. They've got to express their own desires, their own lusts, their own perverted way of thinking in a belief system that will affirm them as the center of that belief system. And so they leave. And many have done that. And they go out and they proclaim. It's the spirit of Antichrist. A second identifying mark is that they deny or distort what Scripture clearly affirms. You see that in verses 21 to 23. It says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, at least these Christians here, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who then is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. And whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father. You know, if you were to read your New Testament, there are two truths that are going to jump out at you. Two classic truths that the church in every age has reaffirmed. They are these. First, that Jesus is the Christ that He's God incarnate in the flesh. He was born a man and He died a man, but through the whole process He was fully God and by dying a man for us as fully God, He redeems us from our sin. That's verse 22. The Scriptures also affirm that you can only have a relationship with God, the true God, through His only begotten Son. That's verses 22 and um, verse 23. Jesus Christ. That, that makes Christianity, I know, very exclusive in a pluralistic world system. But that's the teaching of the Scripture. Jesus Himself said that, didn't He? I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through Me. I'm the gatekeeper. That cuts out a lot of different religions and faiths. The Antichrist of John's day, they were called Gnostics. They did say that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. But in claiming Him to be the Messiah, they used words that church members could identify with, but then they twisted what the actual meaning was when they said that He was the Messiah. See, Gnostics believe this. They believe that Jesus was just a man, a historical man. And in the midst of His life, the Christ, this Spirit that emanates from God, came hurtling down from heaven and rested on Jesus the man at His baptism, and then lived with Jesus, helping Him do wonderful things, and then right before His crucifixion, this Spirit went back into heaven. So they said He was the Messiah and that He showed the way. But they denied that Jesus was God incarnate, fully God in the flesh throughout His life. And you know, all heresies do that. Think about it. 
All heresies use common words, words we would use, words these first century Christians would use, except they have different meanings to them. And if you don't really understand what incarnate means and the humanity and deity of Christ, anybody can come knocking at your door and use these words that you've heard in church all your life. And if you're not sharp and clear and discerning, they can get you to believe what they believe using terms you've grown up with. That's the very nature of a heresy. For instance, if you go into liberal churches, very liberal churches where the pastors have been trained in liberal theology, and I've had the opportunity to talk with some of those men, and I've enjoyed my conversations with them, and we'll be using the same terms. And they'll talk about the historical Jesus, and then they'll talk about the Christ of faith. And after I listen carefully, I begin to hear that like those are two separate things. The historical Jesus and the Christ of faith. And you begin to pin that down with them and you begin to find that they use a lot of the same God talk. When you finally get the equation down to what they're talking about, they are saying not what I'm saying. That Jesus Christ was fully man and fully God as revealed in an errorless text, the New Testament, and performed the miracles and rose from the dead and was born a virgin. They're not saying that. What they're saying is that Jesus, the historical Jesus, was fully man, and the Christ was fully myth, or partly myth. And all those stories about Jesus going through his life were exaggerations and embellishments and kind of stories that would cause you to want to have faith in this error-filled New Testament that's filled not with miracles, but with stories that just kind of encourage you to believe. Now, does that sound a little bit like Gnosticism? Like you got this historical man, and then you've got this kind of super myth over here? Two different... It is. That's exactly what it is. It's the spirit of Antichrist. You know, as nice as those young men are, and they are very nice, who you see around town with white shirts on and bicycles... And they come to your door and they look like all American boys and really, they're, they're great people. But the message that they present to you about Jesus Christ is not Christ. It's Antichrist. As compassionate as it sounds when Unitarians talk about all roads and all faiths coming to God and it's just whether you're sincere or not, and they all work their way to God and find themselves in this uh, ecclesiastical cosmos of plurality where we're all one, as compassionate as that sounds for all these different faiths around the world, it's the message of Antichrist. It's not Christ. As zealous as those Jehovah Witnesses look at your door, and uh, you appreciate the, the vibrancy that, of their message that they wanted you to believe about Jehovah being the only true God, the only one God, as they press that message and as you listen with a discerning eye and hear that Jesus Christ is not God incarnate, it's a message of Antichrist. It's not the message of Christ. You see, many Antichrists have gone out in our day too. And they look good and they have compassion, and they feel right, but their aroma is not. It's evil, whether they know it or not, hidden behind 
a real pleasant human face. A final mark is in verse 26, and that is that these antichrists rigorously seek to deceive others. In verse 26 it says, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. They're trying. They, they want to convert you. You know, it's interesting, with all the put-downs of evangelicals sharing their faith, one of the places I find an evangelical spirit more than any other, although it's the opposite of my kind of evangelical spirit, is on the college campus. Universities and colleges across our world are filled with, with the very evangelistic professors who simply delight in destroying the orthodox faith of the students who attend those particular campuses. Even on some Christian campuses, you will find those same types. In fact, just this week, I was talking to a young man who attends UALR here right in our own city. And he was in a class, and the professor has been walking them through some different beliefs, and he was talking about Jesus Christ and how much he's into the Bible, and he presented Jesus Christ as a shaman. And everybody was, they were kind of into that big word, and that Jesus Christ was a shaman and doing all these special things that you, you too can do. Do you know what a shaman is? It's an anthropological word for one who practices witchcraft and sorcery. That's what a shaman is. And so he was presenting that Jesus Christ is much like us in that he uses these powers, and in particular for him it was the powers of ESP and clairvoyance and telepathy and psychokinesis, rather than he was demonstrating his power because he was deity. There's a difference, isn't there? It's the spirit of Antichrist. Made me think back, you know, to my college days. I was a brand new Christian and I was caught right before the class mentioned to a friend I was a Christian. The professor picked up on it. And the next day, I'll never forget in the whole class, somehow, maybe he was having a rough day, you know. But uh, he started talking about Christianity. And he said, you know, it's just hard to think anybody would believe in a person 2,000 years ago. This Jesus. And he came over and he said, he looked at me and he went, where is Jesus? And here I'm in a class and he's right in front of me. And I've just been a Christian probably for a week. And he went, where is Jesus? I mean, where is he? Here, Jesus. He said, Jesus, if you're there, why don't you just come on right in here? I mean, maybe you can even strike me down so these people can believe. Where are you? Come on. Now, I'm, I'm a 19-year-old kid. And he came over and he got my face and he went, see? See? He's not here. That has a pretty big impact, doesn't it? Now, if I'd have been in some weird art class, maybe with a professor I could have thought, well, man, you know, this guy's just way off the deep end. <laughs> but I wanted an art class. This was my economics professor. But it's the spirit of Antichrist. And those types are strategically placed, isn't it interesting, all over our campuses, all over our nation, bent on destroying the faith of young people who grow up in Orthodox churches and are trying to be nurtured to a wholesome and healthy spiritual life. It's a last hour kind of time that we live in. The kind Jude speaks of in a few pages later in his little letter, when he said, in the last days there will come many who will be mockers of good. And they will cause divisions because they are devoid of the Spirit. 
but they look good and they sound good. They're antichrist. Many of them. You know, before we finish with the last couple of verses here, I want to remind you that not every heresy in the church is a big heresy. There are a lot of little heresies that came to mind when I thought about this passage because remember, life is a series of small moments where you decide good and evil. It doesn't just involve denying the deity of Jesus Christ or His atoning work on the cross or uh, the faith in general. Uh, there are small little vipers in the world, small snakes that are far more poisonous than the more hideous looking ones. And I want to list for you just briefly, four small heresies that can impact and infect every church. The first I want to call the double life heresy. This is the heresy that comes from a person who lives a double life. They proclaim their faith vigorously and publicly in some arenas, but then they turn around and they live out an unrestrained pagan life in others. And it creates a heresy of sorts. It spreads poison to their friends, to the people who watch them who are still yet not in the faith, but who are thinking maybe there's a difference there. It also spreads poison to those who see most intimately both sides of this person's life, and that is children. And what they see in that heresy is that Christianity is a make-believe religion for hypocrites. You know, that's a heresy. That has a major impact. And it especially does, as we know from the Scriptures, on unbelievers who are looking for some hope in their life, and then they get around somebody who is standing out of his shop talking Christian talk with one of his friends that goes to the same church and then walks away and goes in the back of the shop and curses out his employee for what he did wrong with no grace and no compassion. And that unbeliever sits there and compares those two. And he does just like what Paul said would happen in Romans 2 and he says those of you who say it's wrong to steal, do you steal? Those of you who say it's wrong to commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And he goes on and on and lists those kind of things and he says if you do both sides the heresy of the double life then he concludes the name of God is blasphemed in the community because of you and your hypocrisy. It's called the heresy of the double life. Then there's the heresy I call the discount heresy. It is a heresy that comes when one discounts particular passages of Scripture because they don't like them and they keep them from doing what they want. Oh yeah, they embrace most of the Scripture, but here or there is a passage that puts a mark or puts pressure on their life, and so they reinterpret it. They jump back and they suddenly claim the right of private interpretation and they say, well, that's what everything else they've heard the pastor say they agree with. But, you know, at this point, he's going too far, and that's not necessarily what the Bible says. And besides, what it means to me is this. The heck with what the pastor said. The heck with what 2,000 years of church history has said. This is what it means to me, so now I'm going to go off and do what I want and then say it's okay. So my job in life is to make everything coordinate with me. So if I believe that God wants me to be happy and I'm not doing well in my marriage, then I just divorce. But then when somebody says, but you didn't have grounds for divorce. Oh, you know, that's just the pastor's interpretation over there at that church. 
They have no thought of what the fact that what that guy's saying is what the church has said for 2,000 years with theologians that would make his brain look like a peanut. <laughs> but suddenly, he claims the right of private interpretation. You know what that's called? It's called discount heresy. Or where because we're in love, we can go ahead and have sex even though the Bible says it's wrong before marriage. Or where I don't have to forgive somebody because I know the Bible says we're supposed to forgive, but what they did to me was just too it was just too serious. Because it's so bad that what God said there, where it said forgive, it's forgive except if you do this little thing. Then you don't have to. That's how I interpret that. And so I spread that. And you know, people hear that. And they hear you say that. And then they say, well, gosh, if he did that, then I don't like this. So I think this is not, the Bible really doesn't say this either. And you know what that does? That just leavens the whole lump. Then there is the heresy I call the what's in it for me heresy. It's a heresy when we call ourselves Christians, yet our goal in being a Christian is not in living for Jesus Christ. But our main intent, maybe the only thing we've ever really thought about, we thought about Christianity, is fitting in and having friends and and maybe being comfortable. Now, now that may sound funny, but I, I know, I believe there are people who have been in church all their life and they have never had this thought seriously in their soul that the reason I'm here is to follow Jesus Christ. There is all kinds of other statements there, but not that statement. It is to feel secure or to have friends or to be a part of a healthy group of people, but the idea of following Jesus, it's just not there. And that's a heresy. You see, when the central theme is comfort, or to be healthy and wealthy and without disease and I'm going to get blessed and all that, but somehow the thought never rounds in there. The central thought of the New Testament, follow me, that becomes a heresy in the church. A last heresy I want to mention to you is what I call the heresy that Christianity doesn't work. And that heresy springs out into the marketplace when a Christian just simply quits trying to live the Christian life. They come to a place where they just give up. They decide it's too much or I don't want to do this anymore. And so they just kind of go on their own from that point on. They just kind of shut down. Uh, let me give an illustration of how that works. One of my sons told me sometime back about a paper that a classmate wrote for a class assignment. And they were to tell a story about themselves. And my son happened to be designated the little editor of the class. And so he got to read the papers and came across this young man's paper. And he wrote a story about his family and the divorce that they went through. And my son Garrett came to me and he said, you know, Dad, I read that story. And uh, we were sitting there just on the sofa the other day. And he said, it really made me cry. Made me cry. And then he said to me, Dad, I don't, want, I don't want to get divorced when I grow up. But he said, most of the kids in my class are divorced. And then he said, I don't want to hurt my children. That, that hurt so much. I could just feel the pain. I don't want to hurt my kids like that. And then he followed that with the next statement, which was a question which said, Dad, how can you know you're marrying the right one? That's a 12-year-old kid. That's a good question, isn't it? That is a powerful question. It's one of those teachable moments you don't want to let get away from you. 
And so I said to him, I said, well, Garrett, to me, to have a good, secure marriage, you need two people committed to Jesus Christ. I thought that sounded pretty good, don't you? And, uh, and, and I only regret that I didn't, I didn't finish. There was one line I should have added. And let me tell you, he's just like any average kid. He picked up on it in a minute. He listened to me, looked at me, picked up his basketball, started running out the front door with these words. Quite matter-of-factly, by the way. He said, I don't know, Dad. I know so-and-so are both committed Christians, and they got divorced. You see, in place of hope that I was trying to give, there's somebody we know who had left an infection of heresy. And what's that infection? That it really doesn't work. See, what I should have said to him was not, Garrett, that they need to be both committed Christians. I should have said, well, you can have a secure marriage if you have two people committed to Christ for a lifetime. That's what I left off. But you know what? When, when people see supposedly committed Christians quit, heresy breaks out in the church. So how can a Christian avoid getting tangled up in these heresies that are spawned by human face? Well, John goes on and he gives two reliable lie detectors that help keep us safe and sure. The first one is found in verse 24. It just says, As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. And we all know what that is. That's the Word of God. And you might just write these words down. Take everything to the Word. You're going to live in a world that's going to have unbelievable seductions. And in those tiny moments of life, when you're trying to figure what is true and what is false, I plead with you, take everything to the Word. But then secondly, there are going to be things there, issues you're going to face where the Word doesn't directly answer them, like who do you marry and those kind of things. And that brings a second aspect that John mentions in verse 27. He says, as for you, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. A clear reference. By the way, you can go back to verse 20 and it says it clear, even clearer. But it's a reference to the Holy Spirit that comes into a believer's life the moment they receive Christ. That Spirit is there to help you. He abides with you. And it says there, you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you. And then he pleads with them. It abides in you. Then he leads with this command you abide in Him. And people always say, what does it mean to abide in the Holy Spirit? How, how do you get those answers about who do you marry and whether you should take that job or how you should handle this situation? Well, I can reduce it down to just simply a, an exhortation. When you're in doubt on anything, wait, pray, and listen. Because He is in you, the Spirit of truth. And He will, as the Scripture says, if you seek for Him with all your heart, you will surely, this is what it says, surely find Him. You'll have your answer in time, but you have to wait and pray and listen. So there's a real objective truth without the Word. There's a subjective truth within the Spirit. And when you abide in both, in those tiny moments of time, if your life in that small percentage is marked by an abiding word and an abiding spirit, then you will have not failure, but success. 
And you will have not tragedy, but character, godly character. And you will have not a heretical influence, but you will spread out a godly legacy that will impact even future generations. Let's bow in prayer. And I want to close us in prayer and then we'll be dismissed. But my prayer for you in this evil generation with so much around us, that you'll live for Him. Father, we thank You for this hour. We thank You for the fact that You have not left us, as Jesus said, as orphans. You've given us Your Spirit. You've given us Your Word. And Lord, as we take these things up and as we use them in those few but impactful moments of our life, we will in fact be determining the kind of person that we want to be and will be. I pray for this wonderful body of believers, for the men and women who sit before me, that you would use those moments and your word and your spirit to shape their life to a very godly texture and character. And that at the end of their life, just like Abraham that was mentioned earlier in the sharing, that they might finish their life, like Genesis says, Abraham's finished, when he died satisfied, the Scripture says, with life. Lord, protect us in this last hour we live in. And help us to be people of truth, for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.